Awesome. Well, it's a privilege to be with you guys this morning. Uh, particularly fun to get to be out here. Mary's got my wife. Mary is here with me this morning. She's been out here one Sunday to see this work, and it's just it's really encouraging to see what God is doing uh, out here at Trinity Grace. So thank you all for having me. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to First uh, John. We're going to look at the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. And uh, if you don't, that's okay. It's, I think it's printed there in your bulletin this morning. And it's kind of funny that this ended up being Father's Day. I didn't think about that when I planned to preach on this. This is one of those uh, happy coincidences. You probably don't believe that, but it really was a happy coincidence uh, that we were getting to preach on a text where we get to hear uh, that God calls us His children, uh, that God calls Himself our Father. Uh, so uh, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, I want to start us off with a question. Uh, anybody here wish that they were different? Does anybody here wish that they were different? Do you wish that you could change? Do you wish that you could be better? Me too. Got a hand raised in the back. That's awesome. Really get that with college students. They're a little more subdued than that. Uh, we all want to change, right? One of the big questions of life. How do I become the best version of myself? It's not even a strictly Christian question, is it? This is a question that everyone wrestles with. Um, see the self-help aisle in any bookstore, right? We're all trying to get better. We have Maybe we have different definitions of what that looks like, but we all want to be the best version of ourselves. And I just want to point out that underneath that question are a couple of presuppositions, a couple of things that we're believing on the front end. Number one, none of us are the people that we long to be. Can we, can we grant that to one another? None of us are the people that we long to be. And number two, there's another presupposition. We believe if we can just find the right process or perhaps the right steps, the right motivation, if you're anything like me, the right smartphone app, if I can just find the right productivity app, my whole life will get together, can finally be the person I want to be, right? That's the second presupposition. We believe that if we can just find the right something, we can finally get it together. We can finally get the affirmation, the love, and the acceptance that I want in this life. And so we're all hunting this holy grail, the secret to real and lasting change. And on the other hand, we feel... Um, the gravity of the fact that we've been trying to do that for a very long time. We've all been trying to change. We've tried many, many things, haven't we? Every time a new year comes around, we try new resolutions. We think this is the time I'm going to finally get it together. Uh, And we're still not where we want to be. Nothing seems to be working. It feels like the game of life is kind of rigged against us, doesn't it? And in our darker moments, if we're honest, we start to wonder if it's even worth it to try anymore. Is it worth it to try to change? Is there any hope at all that we can change? In our passage of Scripture this morning, the Apostle John tells us, yes, there is. But not for the reason you might think. Not because there's some simple five-step process to getting all the affirmation, love, and acceptance you want in this life. But actually because in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you already have it. John introduces us to what theologians call the doctrine of adoption this morning. This is the idea that salvation in Jesus is not just about having your sins forgiven or having your cosmic legal case resolved. That is a big piece of what is going on in salvation. But salvation is also about being brought into the family of God. There's a great J.I. Packer quote in your bulletin this morning where he talks about this being the primary way we need to conceive of ourselves as Christians, that we are children of God the Father. Uh, Because if you believe in Jesus, you are God's child. And this has huge implications for how we change. The question I started us off with this morning, do you want to get better? Because John tells us that just like any other family, when you're in God's family, you bear the family resemblance to Him. Kids don't have to look like you, walk like you, talk like you in order to become your children, right? They do those things because they already are. 
their behavior flows out of their identity. They're your kids. They look like you. They don't look like you to become your kids. Does that make sense? John tells us it's the same with us. So, before I read the passage, two simple points this morning. The keys to how we change. Here we go. Remember whose you are. Whose. Who do you belong to? Remember whose you are. Be who you are. Remember whose you are. Be who you are. Okay, that's a long introduction. So let me read the passage. And before I do that, let me ask God to join us by His Spirit as we read His Word. Heavenly Father, I pray now that as we turn our attention to Your holy, inspired Word, that You would send Your Spirit... Uh, to open up our eyes to see wonderful things from your law. And pray, uh, Lord, that you would feed us this morning. We know that we don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. And so we don't need to hear opinions. We don't need to hear new ideas that I have. We need to hear from you. And so I pray that you would speak by your word this morning. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's Word endures forever and ever. Uh, there's something really powerful about the first time that you realize your parents are proud of you. I wonder if you have a distinct memory that you can think of the first time you really remember your parents just showing excitement for you. I remember exactly uh, when that was. Uh, I was a kid. I was playing baseball. I was not very good at baseball. That may surprise you. You're looking think, you look like such a natural athlete. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. Uh, I was not good, though, as a child at baseball. Um, I remember the transition from t-ball to where they actually start letting the kids pitch was really hard for me. T-ball was really fun. Everybody's good at t-ball. It's mostly about the snacks after the game. That was great for me. When it became a little more competitive and kids started throwing faster, it was horrible. And so this entire season, I struck out every single at-bat that I went up there. And I didn't just like strike out, like I wasn't even making contact with the ball. I wasn't fouling it off. There was nothing that was happening. I was just going up there, uh, striking out and sitting down. And I remember now looking back, I think about like what that must have been like for my parents. Like to just, you know, spend the money on the baseball pants and the bat and the glove and to show up Tuesday and Thursday night every week for practice for their son to just be horrible at baseball and to watch other kids get better and just to think, man, I hope he's good at reading or something. I hope he figures this out because we, what hope does he have in his life? This guy, this kid is terrible. Um, and so anyway, got to the end of the season, one of the last games, I had just gotten into the rhythm where I would just go up to the batter's box. I would close my eyes, swing three times, go sit down. I had worked out a good situation with my teammates. They understood it. I understood it. I still got a Capri Sun after the game. It all worked out. And on accident, this one time that I went up to bat, 
I accidentally hit the ball. I had closed my eyes, the pitch came in, I swung, I heard an, a very unfamiliar sound, which was the ping of the bat hitting the ball. And to my great surprise, I didn't just hit it, I really crushed this ball. I mean, I hit it right in the fat part of the bat. I looked up, it's going way into right field, and the kid out there is like a mirror version of me. I mean, he's got his finger in his nose, he's not paying attention to anything. And so it occurs to me, I have to run now because that ball is going to land fair. Like, I have to go to first base, which is very exciting. I've never gotten to do this before. So I run to first base. The coach tells me, go to, go to. I use context clues to figure out that means run to second base. <laughs> go to second base, and I look up, and the third base coach is waving me on. He says, come on. So I start running to third base, and then he starts to do this motion, which I take to mean you need to get down because the kid finally woke up, and he is throwing the ball in, and you need to slide which is complicated because I've never had to slide before. Uh, so I end up rolling into third base, safe. First base hit of all time is a triple. And I did what every kid who has ever done something like that does in that moment. I looked to the stands to find where my parents were to see if they saw it, right? Okay, so pause the story briefly for just a moment and consider the facts as we pan over to my parents for their reaction shot. My parents have watched me strike out every at-bat this entire season. This triple brings my batting average up to a .001 on the season. I am still a colossal failure by any measure when it comes to baseball. Right? The average person who was in the stands, maybe one of the other kids' parents, would have looked on this and thought, oh, isn't that nice? Right? Good for him. Finally got a triple. What do you think my parents were doing as they saw me roll into third base with a triple? They were freaking out, right? My parents were losing my mind. They're not like me. They're very subdued people. They don't have this kind of chatterbox thing going on that I've got going on. They were jumping up and down and hugging strangers, shaking them. Did you see that? Did you see that? My son hit a triple. Why were they doing that? Because I'm their son. I'm their son. I don't care how many times your kid strikes out, when your son hits a triple, that's how you respond, isn't it? Or at least it should be. The status of the kid changes the reaction. Wasn't as big of a deal to the other parents, though they might have been nice enough to have cheered. For my parents, it's a big deal because I'm their son. In our passage this morning, John tells us that God calls us his children. And I suspect that if I asked you, what do you think God thinks about when he thinks about you? It's actually a really good question. I didn't come up with it. What do you think God thinks about when he thinks about you? Not many of us would conjure up a scene like what I just described. With God excited about us. God delighted in us. In the same chapter of Michael's prayer this morning, he was talking about the prodigal son from Luke chapter 16. And in that same chapter, Jesus says, There is more joy, joy, in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons that need no repentance. Do that math really quick. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner, a bad person, who repents, who turns from their evil doing towards God, than over 99 righteous persons that need no repentance. There is joy in heaven over a failure who comes back to God. More joy than over the ones who never left. This is some heavenly calculus that God throws out to us. That means is that we have a God who goes wild for triples in a season full of strikeouts. Is it possible that God the Father looks at you like that? Is it possible that when you begin to answer that question, what does God think about when he thinks about you, that he actually delights in you? 
that God takes joy in the fact that you are His child. I ask that because of the original question I asked at the top of our time together about, do you want to change? Do you want to get better? I don't think it's possible to begin to change in the Christian life until you understand exactly what your relationship with God is. And if you're not a Christian this morning, we're really glad that you're here. I just want to say, for you, you haven't accurately understood what Christianity and God are offering to you until you get this dynamic. That God is not merely inviting you to check off a set of boxes to get yourself into the good place when you die. It's not what Christianity is. He's inviting you into His family. God is inviting you into His family. So go back to that question. What do you think God thinks about when He thinks about you? I think most of us go straight to our failure, do we not? We are living up to our own standards, much less God's standards. And the shame of that sends us in one or two directions. Number one, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to be better. Or two, it cripples us and we want to give up. Never going to get better. Why do I keep bothering? Why do I keep trying the same things over and over again? Isn't that a definition of insanity? And John gives us the antidote this morning. So what I want to do is just walk verse by verse through this passage together and unpack a few things as we think about what it means to be in God's family and what that means for us as we seek to change. And the two ideas that I threw out at the beginning are going to guide our time together. Remember whose you are. Who do you belong to? And second, be who you are. Remember remember whose you are. Be who you are. Okay, let's look at that first one together. Remember whose you are. Look back at verses 28 and 29 at the end of 1 John chapter 2. John sets up his exhortation to us by calling us children. And then he gives the command. He says, abide in him, by which he means Jesus. So why should we do that? So that, in order that, when Jesus appears, we can have confidence rather than shame. So John is talking about the second coming of Jesus, right? Jesus came one time, lived on the earth as a perfect man, died the death to sin that we should have died, rose again from the dead, and ascended up to where God is. And now we are waiting for him to return again, to resolve all things, to make all things right. And John says on that day, when Jesus comes back, you can respond in one of two ways. You can either have confidence, you can be excited to see Jesus, or you can shrink from him in shame. Uh, Mary and I have a golden retriever. He's about three years old right now. One of the really fun things about having a golden retriever is how excited they are when you come home. And one of the also really funny things is when we come home and our dog is nowhere to be found. And that always means one thing. She has been up on the counter getting food that she was not supposed to get, and she knows it. Our dog, I've never seen a dog that has as much shame as our dog does. We come in, she doesn't greet us, and we realize something has happened here. We walk around the corner And you've seen a dog do it. She is cowering in absolute shame because she knows she shouldn't have done it. We have talked about this over and over and over again, despite the fact that she doesn't speak very good English. We have talked about, don't get up on the counter. Don't eat the food. She knows she's not supposed to do that, and she cannot resist her desires. And so she shrinks from us in shame when we come back. Okay, think about that image versus another one that perhaps you've seen. It's a picture from when JFK was president of the United States. He's sitting in the Oval Office, the seat of his power. He's behind the Resolute Desk. He is in the place where not just any of us can walk in, right? You can't just walk into the Oval Office and talk to the most powerful person on the planet. And yet in the picture, you see JFK sitting there, and underneath his legs in the desk, you see a little boy playing with his trains. And you know immediately who that little boy is, right? It's JFK Jr. Stop and think about that for a moment. This is an American citizen playing with toys in the most powerful room 
on the planet and from the most powerful person on the planet? What would give a person that kind of confidence? Well, I mean, he's his kid, right? The son of the president gets to do that because he's his son. He gets to have that kind of confidence because of their relationship. John is talking about something similar in our passage, that we have to have that kind of confidence because we know what kind of relationship we have with God. How do we go about making sure that we respond with confidence rather than shame when Jesus comes back? John says in the passage we have to abide in Him. Abide is one of those Christian-y buzzwords that kind of gets thrown around, and we say it and we often don't know what it means. It just means continue. Keep going. John says continue with Jesus. Keep going with Jesus. And how are you supposed to do that? You're supposed to do it as little children, the verse says. Little children abide in Him, he writes. And then he gets at this even more in verse 29. Excuse me. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Those who practice righteousness begin to bear the family resemblance. So fun to come to a church and see like a lot of little kids. Do y'all have kids around here where you look at that kid and you're not exactly sure what their name is, but you know exactly which parent they belong to? Right? You just see it. You look at them and you go, man, he has his dad's eyes. Oh, he walks just like her mother. Right? You see these kids and you know who they belong to. John tells us that's the way our righteousness works for the Christian. People begin to see it and they know who that person belongs to. But the order there is of really supreme importance. I mentioned this at the top. Kids don't talk and walk like their parents to become their children. They do that because they already are. You have your father's eyes because you're his child. You aren't his child because you have his eyes. In the Christian life, righteousness works the same way. It's evidence that we're God's children. Evidence, not the condition upon which we become God's children. The condition upon which we become God's children is Jesus' righteousness. Right? The hymn says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Not our righteousness, Jesus's. So we don't obey in order to become God's children. We obey because we already are. I think that order is really, really important because that's something unique that Christianity has. Pastor Tim Keller says this. He says, This is the difference between Christianity and all other religions. Every other religion says, This is what you do to get to God. And Christianity says, This is what God has done to get to you. It's a really big difference. This is what you do to get to God. Work hard, follow this path, read this book. Versus what God has on offer for us. This is what God has done to get to you. John tells us that obedience in the Christian life works the same way. We don't obey to become God's children. We obey because we already are. If we have believed on the Lord Jesus. I love that translation in verse 29. Practicing righteousness. Practicing. Not perfectly executing righteousness. Practicing. What does it mean to practice something? It's our habit. We're working at it. We're getting better at it. Yes? But not yet perfect. We're bearing out our family resemblance. Uh, I'll be honest. I think this is why so many of us are struggling in our Christian lives. Is there anything like me? It is a struggle. We're constantly trying to get back on the wagon. We're overburdening ourselves because we think we have to gain our Father's acceptance. Uh, And I think part of that is what Michael pointed to. Many of us have complicated relationships with our earthly fathers. He was not very, perhaps he was not very generous with you. Very kind in the way that he communicated. He was very withholding with his affection. He had to always get it right. And we take that and we map that on top of our view of God the Father. And yet the story we've already talked about, the story of the prodigal son, um, we see how God responds to his children. The, the prodigal son works up that speech. you remember this from the passage? 
from the story? He says, okay, I'm going to go back, and I'm not going to be my father's son. I'll be a hired servant. I know I can't be his child anymore. I'm dead to him. I'll be his servant. And so he has that whole speech worked up. He gets back to his father's house. He starts his own speech, and what happens? The father completely interrupts him. He starts the party. He said, we don't have time for this. Get the best robe. Kill the fattened calf. My son was dead, and he's alive again. And the Bible is full of passages like this. We read from Hosea where God talks about Israel, his people, as his children, that he will not pour out his wrath upon them. God does this over and over and over again. He's clear when he communicates uh, that he throws parties for sinners who come home. If we're ever going to change, we have to remember whose we are. We have to marvel at our relationship with God that he would call himself our father. And we see a really good example of how to do that in 1 John at the beginning of chapter 3. You can see this. John begins to do this. Uh, Even in the English, you can almost catch how breathless John is as he starts to describe the amazing love of God in calling us children. In the Greek, verse 1 literally says, from what country is this love? It's a Greek colloquialism, but you kind of get what it means, right? My translation would read something like, what in the world kind of love is this? What in the world kind of love is this that we should be called children of God? And not just called children, as if there's some kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing going on, where it's like, you know, they're his kid. No, we are. We are God's children. Which is why, John says, the world doesn't recognize us. He says that at the end of verse 1. They don't know what to do with Jesus. They didn't know what to do with him when he came. And because we look so much like him, they don't know what to do with us either. Or just pause and ask if that's true of your life. Have you ever had a moment where you looked so much like Jesus that people didn't know what to do with you. It's almost hard for me to imagine something like that. Um, We bear the family resemblance. That's the calling for Christians. Look like Jesus did. And then in verse 2, John starts getting more carried away about the fact that we're God's children. He starts imagining the day when Jesus comes back again. He says, yes, we're God's children now, but even newer and better wonders await. What we will be has not yet appeared. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of verse 2. He says, But friends, that's exactly who we are, children of God. And that's only the beginning. Who knows how we'll turn out? Who knows how we'll end up? This status as children of God unfolds out into eternity. And John says, I don't even know what that is going to look like to become so much like Jesus. We'll see Jesus as he is, and in seeing him, we will become like him. I wonder if you've ever uh, met, my grandparents are this way, an old couple that they've been together so long that they've started to look like each other. You know any couples like this? Where something just, their love has kind of started to shape them. They just, they're making the same facial expressions, their eyes look the same. Um, It's crazy. John's saying something similar is going to happen to us when we see Jesus, except it's going to happen like that. In the blink of an eye, we are going to look upon the Lord Jesus and we will be like him because we will see him as He is. No more of this struggling. No more of this seesawing back and forth between faithfulness and lack thereof. We will see Jesus and we will be like him. And then in verse 3, John brings it back to the present. Everyone who has that hope in Jesus, that is that in seeing him they will be like him, they let that hope play out in the present. They let that future hope bleed into their present life. They start changing themselves Now, they purify themselves, he says in verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in Jesus purifies himself as he is pure. 
And so that's the call this morning, if you're a Christian this morning. The call is to obey. But it's not an obedience where we are whipping ourselves, trying to just stir up obedience within ourselves. We are obeying because we have a God who loves us. We obey because we are His children. Once we remember whose we are, we have to be who we are. We have to go and we have to live that out. Some of you had parents who before you would go out on dates or go out with friends or whatever it was in high school, they would say, remember your name. Remember your name. You represent us. Remember who you are. There's a similar dynamic in the Christian life. Why do your parents do that? Because it's a powerful thing to be reminded who you are. Um, Has anybody seen the movie Cinderella Man? Don't know that movie. I'm always scared to use movie illustrations when I come to a church like Michael's because I know Michael is really savvy. I'm always just scared that he's already used this. Uh, but even if he has, it's worth repeating. Cinderella Man, one of the great all-time movies. It's a true story about a guy named James Braddock, played by Russell Crowe. He's a boxer during the Depression. And he's fighting, literally fighting, boxing to support his family. Uh, and in the climactic scene at the end of the movie, he's getting ready to fight this man who has killed other men in the, in the ring. And his wife, May, has been begging him and begging him not to fight him. There's got to be another way for you to support us. This can't be the only way to do this. And he just doesn't see another way to do it. And she says, I'm not coming. I won't come watch it. I won't come watch you get killed. And so he's in the locker room preparing to fight this guy. And uh, his manager's in there trying to pump him up. And he, uh, he says, remember all those guys? What about all those guys you beat before this? You beat harder guys than this. And you look in Russell Crowe's eyes and you can tell it's not working. His mind is somewhere else. And then all of a sudden his wife appears in the doorway. And she walks up to her husband and she tells him, you can't win without me behind you. You can't win without me behind you. And Russell Crowe says, I know, that's what I've been trying to tell you. And they kind of have a sweet moment. And then she grabs him and she looks him right in the eyes and she tells him, you just remember who you are. You just remember who you are. You're the bulldog of Bergen. You're the pride of New Jersey. You're everybody's hope. You're your kid's hero, and you're the champion of my heart. And then she gives him a big hug. Not that dissimilar of a speech from what his manager had just given him. And yet something comes alive in Russell Crowe in that moment. Because it's a powerful thing to be reminded who you are by the one that you belong to. Is it not? She was his wife. It changes it. It changes it to hear it from her. John tells us that God calls us his children. God, the creator of heaven and earth and all that there is, calls you in Jesus his child. So back to the question that we asked at the beginning, do you want to change? Do you want to be the person that you're called to be? Then you have to remember whose you are. And you have to be who you are. Remember that you belong to God the Father, that He calls you child, and that He delights in you and takes joy in you as a perfect father would. And live out of that. Be obedient. Live as you ought to live. Look like Jesus, knowing that it brings that same Father delight and joy. Purify yourself as He is pure. Um, For those of you who are not Christians this morning, this is what you're being invited into. Not into a list of rules to check off. Not just something to say so that you make sure you go to the right place and not the wrong place after we die. God wants you to be in His family. He wants you to be in His family and He wants you to look like Him. He wants you to bear the family resemblance. 
For those of you who are in Christ this morning, how would your life change if you remembered that God is your loving Heavenly Father? What if the Bible became a book, not that you had to read out of guilt to check some boxes every morning, but a book, by a means by which you might commune with God the Father? A time that you might be able to set aside and go be with Him and learn how much He loves you. What if church became something like that? What if Trinity Grace was a community where people could walk in here and know that they were in a family? We have to remember whose we are and we have to be who we are. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, thank you uh, this morning that you call us children. That you are our Heavenly Father. I pray that you would help us to remember that. God, we are a forgetful people. We think of Israel and how often you delivered them. And that you would lead them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And within days, they would long to go back. And God, we're no different. We are just like those stiff-necked people. That we have been delivered by you. We've been loved by you. And yet we still long, as Michael mentioned earlier during our confession of sin, to hide in darkness. God, I pray that you would bring us into your marvelous light this morning, not to shame us, but to remind us of your love. That you would show us truly who you are. I pray for those who are seeking this morning, who aren't sure where they are with respect to you. I pray that you would work in their hearts, God. Would they see you for who you are? I pray for those of us who are Christians this morning, who long to change, who long to be better, who long to be the versions of ourselves that you've called us to be. God, we can't do that but by your Spirit's work in us. So I pray that you would be at work. Would you begin to change us and mold us and make us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we look forward to that day, God, when we will see you face to face and seeing you be like you. We look forward to that day when you will complete the work which you began in us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.